When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... It's the 500th episode of Little Atoms, and I'm talking to author Philip Henshaw about his latest novel, The Friendly Ones. Philip Henshaw has written ten novels, including The Mulberry Empire, The Book of Shortlisted The Northern Clemency, King of the Badgers, and Scenes from Early Life, which won the Andati Prize in 2012. He's also Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Bath Spa. And Philip's latest novel, which we're going to talk about today, is The Friendly Ones. Philip, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. So how would you describe The Friendly Ones, Philip? It's a story about um, two families living next door to each other and the way that their lives run in parallel and then start to intertwine. Um, It's set in provincial England. The thing about these two families is that they come from very different parts of the world originally and their stories really start to involve much larger questions about kind of societies and how societies um, intermingle and how um, societies absorb people who aren't from the the same place it's about getting used to people who aren't the same as us I reckon I wrote it in quite an exploratory spirit I don't really know what I was aiming to prove when I uh, set out on the uh, on the book and i think those questions remain quite open at the at the end of the book too so it's set in the main there's parts of it is set in bangladesh which we'll get mm. to later on but it's set in the main in sheffield yeah beginning roughly around the 1980s you also grew up in sheffield would have been around this era as well you've written previously also about the city but how much of your sheffield is in this book well, it's the nice thing about Sheffield is that um, not many people have written books about it. You set a book in Venice or Oxford, and it's been thoroughly gone over by all sorts of people. There's a there's a particular joy about um, writing about a city that you know very very intimately that uh, you don't feel once you start writing about a particular building or a turn of uh, a turn of a street that this is going to call you know, Henry James or whoever, to mind. There's a lot of my Sheffield in it. There's a a lot of um, the particular mood of the city in it. I think cities have manners. They have ways of uh, negotiating with each other and of talking, and I hope that a lot of that is uh, is in it. This is a a long book, and it's multi-generational, multi-families, lots of characters... 
goes backwards and forwards in time. And this is this has really become your thing. The Northern mm. Clemency again was was a similar setting. Um, the Emperor Walls, we could say as well, although it goes much further back in time, mm. is a similar thing. Why do you like this this sort of style? Well, I think novelists have uh, a particular length that uh, they move quite naturally at. If you look at the collected works of any given novelist, they are often you know the same sort of length. Most of Dickens's novels are roughly the same length they're about twice as long actually as, as this book so you got off lightly there um i think that um the i mean the length of it is not it's not a conscious decision i mean sometimes i've started a book thinking oh this time i'm going to write a very very short novel i'm going to write an, an exquisite tiny you know 70,000 word novel and uh, and it just kind of seems to expand I think there's a relationship between the number of people in a novel and the length of it. You need uh, you need space to go into people's lives. You need space to go into the way that they interact with each other. And I I just like a novel with as a reader I like a novel with a lot of characters in it. And I think actually it's um it's something to do with um I guess, you know, being interested in a range of human beings and liking a a wide range of uh, uh, of human beings. Sometimes when I read a read a novel and there's, you know, there's three characters in it and some walk-on parts that are dismissed with, you know, uh, dismissed without proper investigation, I start to wonder, does the person who wrote this, do they like the human race? I don't know. I I certainly do like the human race. And I'm always kind of drawn by those kind of glimpses in the street of somebody who whose life just touches your own for a moment and then goes off to who knows where, really. And the one difference with this book from the previous ones, perhaps, is that you've you've included one of the families that you talk about is from an immigrant background. Hmm. You've written before about Bangladesh. Um, tell us something about your connection to that country. Well, I'm married to a Bangladeshi national and I guess the, I mean, I, you know, Bangladesh one always knew about and it sort of touched one's life in in ways on the news. And, you know, and I knew that, um, you know, in, so-called Indian restaurants in this country were, are always run by uh, Bangladeshis, almost always run by Bangladeshis, not only that, run by Bangladeshis from Silet. And those things I sort of knew. And then uh, I met my, uh, met my husband uh, nearly 20 years ago now. And to you know, be absorbed into Bengali society is um, is a very kind of interesting process, and the story that they all have to tell is a very kind of painful one about the founding of the country and the violence uh, in which it uh, erupted. And um, I really didn't know about it. You know, I I didn't actually, I'd never actually heard until I met uh, my husband. I'd never actually heard of the names of the founders of the the country and I never knew the scale of the genocide really in 1971 before the country was founded and I felt that um, there's some um, I mean firstly there's a there's a big question there about uh, about justice because you know none of the none of the perpetrators of the genocide have ever been brought to to justice but and there's also a question about um, about us not knowing us in as white English people not knowing about any of this even though 
know, you know, we we certainly know people from this uh, community. And if we'd bothered to talk to them about their history, we would probably find quite quickly that they had uncles who were, you know, who were murdered. Um, they might ha- even have, you know, cousins who played rather a dishonourable part. But we just don't know because we don't talk to them. I mean, we talk to them, but we don't talk to them about it. And I started to wonder, because like a lot of uh, English people, I've always had this um, rather complacent idea that um, in this country, the white English, they're rather good at racial relations. They're quite relaxed about, you know, being polite to people who are not like them for the most part. And then I thought, well, it's partly true. And partly, even if it is true, it's it's largely at the cost of politely not asking people anything about themselves, really. It's as if um, the these kind of long histories that people carry with them, sometimes um, uh, deeply traumatic, they're kind of carried with them as a sort of secret, as a, and that's the price of being admitted to, to our company. So I thought that the book might do something to undo that, really, and just to you know, present the reader with the kind of, um, with the assimilated surface before ripping up that surface and going back to uh, the origins. And we should say this is something that's happened within our lifetimes. It's not ancient history. Tell us something about what happened. Not the, the Once the independent movement, this is 1971, mm. there's a, a man, Bangabandu, the, mm. the friend of Bengal, as you allude, as he's alluded mm. to in the book, um, who's one of the sort of heads of the independence movement, 1971, the country starts taking steps towards independence, and then there is basically a genocide. Well, what became Bangladesh was the eastern half of Pakistan. It was ruled from Islamabad, and Islamabad had had a uh, a long history of trying to suppress Bengali culture. And Bengali culture is um, very rich. It's primarily a sort of secular culture, although, you know, the unifying thing was uh, was supposed to be religion it's fair to say that for most bengalis the thing they were proudest of was you know poetry and music and art and uh, and literature and film that we would know and film satyajit ray yeah. of course so um what um, i mean it began very badly after independence in 1947 and islamabad tried to suppress Bengali as a language altogether, and uh, there was a there were riots and people were killed. There's a monument to the uh, to the martyrs of the language movement in the early 1950s in Bethnal Green, actually a, reprodu- a reproduction of half size of one that's in Dhaka, and in and this sort of went on um, in a very kind of tense way all through the 1960s and. Um, National radio was forbidden from broadcasting um, Bengali songs and poetry. And finally, in the um, at the end of the 1960s, the uh, general election produced the result that um, the Bangabandhu Sheikh Mujib um, ought to be the um, the president of Pakistan. And um, this wasn't accepted. The result wasn't accepted. And that was really the trigger for the declaration of a new state um, 
at um, Bongo Bondu in March 1971. There was a famous meeting at the racetrack, and he didn't actually announce it, but he might as well have uh, announced it. And at that point, the Pakistani troops uh, moved in and carried out a savage war between uh, March and December 1971. I think the um, the cruelest thing of the the whole war and the thing that is deeply shocking is that um, 10 days or so before the end of the war when India came in on the side of uh, of Bangladesh and really it was clear that Pakistan were going to lose very very quickly Pakistan embarked on a strategy of killing as many intellectuals poets and writers as they could find. And some of the really great figures of Bengali culture were murdered in those in, in that week. And as I say, nobody has ever faced justice for, for what they did. And that was just to basically undermine the, the sort of nascent Bengali culture? They wanted to, uh, they wanted to cripple the, uh, the, the nation that was about to be born. And so the title of this book, The Friendly Ones, alludes mm. both to... The people in the UK that the immigrants meet who are, you know, who are friendly to them rather than reject them, but also has a more sinister meaning back in Bangladesh. Well, it is actually my invention because the real name of the this organisation, Bengali friends said to me that it would be just very shocking and upsetting to see a book titled after this. The real name of the organisation was the Peace Committee. And it was an organisation of collaborators and informers that um, that basically existed to hand over Bengali nationalists to the Pakistani um, authorities when uh, many of them were uh, tortured and, uh, and murdered. Some of those collaborators have in the last few years been uh, been prosecuted in uh, in Bangladesh, but uh, it's been a very very slow process, and and the process of uh, of prosecution has been hedged around with all sorts of uh, difficult questions. I'm Ian Sinclair. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's talk about the two families for for a while. So let's start with the spinsters. Mm. Um, at the beginning of the book, we meet the Sherry Fuller family are having this party. Uh, Hilary Spinster is a retired doctor. He's sort of like nosing over the fence, sort of taking too long to, to trim something in the garden, wants to see what's going on. Um, Introduces to Hilary and, and his... I mean, we won't be able to go through them all, but some mm. of his enormous clan. <laughs> well, the, the Spinsters came from... Um... A very curious observation that a lot of friends of mine started making it were it, it, about three or four times people came to me and said, my God, you know, my, my parents, they've been married for 40 or 50 years and I really think they might be about to get a divorce. They just row all the time. And I don't know what it is. It does seem to me that, you know, I, I don't think the divorce rate is really very high among people in their 80s, but I think it's really... It could be a a tense moment, and what happens to the the spinsters um, uh, Hillary's wife they haven't been happy for years, and it goes back to an affair that uh, that his wife had uh, in the 1960s, 30 years uh, before and Hillary just decides that he wants to put things right before his wife dies she's uh, she's very ill with cancer, and he just announces to his children that he's going to divorce her. 
and the children arrive. There are four of them. They're all a little bit damaged, I would say. They have... um, they haven't quite lived up to expectations and they have a sort of dysfunctional relationship with their father. They can't quite work out why it's so dysfunctional, I suppose. And it was really... And there were lots of things about them that um, were a puzzle to me at first. And I could hear why they were arguing with, with each other or not arguing with each other, kind of walking away from arguments with each other. And I could feel how pugnacious they were and how quick to take offence. And I, it really puzzled me for, for ages why they were like this. I could feel that they were. And then one day, I was about, um, I was, I was about 300 pages into the novel, I suddenly realised that um, they have a particular physical peculiarity that they all share. They're all extremely short. Now, I'm not saying that all short people are like this by any means, but that was why they felt like they did, why they sort of clung together, and also why they felt that um, the world was slightly strange to them. It wasn't quite suited to them. So um, it it kind of went on from there, really. Um, You mentioned that (laughs) Hillary's decision to divorce Celia, and... And as appalling as this sounds, actually, she might be up for it herself. There's this one great scene that I was really struck by where Leo, the the son, goes to visit Celia in hospital just before Mm. he basically leaves for the rest of the book. Leaves the family, he's still a character in the book, um, in sort of one of the central dramas of the story. And, um, And she says to him, you know, I should have walked away. There was a point where I made a mistake... And that mm. mistake was basically your life, which yep. is an incredible image, I think. Yes, it's um, it's one of those things that people say from time to time, but um, I don't think it's necessarily true. Or, and I think if uh, if you do walk away, often it's just into another thing which might turn into a uh, a mistake. Yes, it's it's certainly it, it is certainly true that those things, you know, they're very they're very painful, but um the one thing that we all ought to learn from from family life is um, people are people are much tougher than we expect they're going to be. You know, it's one of those um it's one of those things that people um it's, people are very very rarely killed by um um, a an extreme piece of news or information or something that somebody says to them. Just say something about about each of the of Hillary and Celia's children. So I've mentioned Leo mm. at the start of the book. At the start of the story, he's a he's a journalist. Um, then there's Blossom, Lavinia, and Hugh. Just tell us something about each of those briefly. Well, Leo is really formed by a one of the worst failures that can happen to a child in middle class life is that he's defeated by university and walks away from it and i think he's never really going to get over that um the thing that um the thing that happens to uh, to leo is that um, and actually this became more of a hot subject while I was writing the the book is that his life is really destroyed by him saying really the wrong thing to a woman a you know something that is not you know within the bounds of acceptability at all and the woman shares this information with other people and his life is destroyed by it now I don't think you know it's an it's an interesting point this really and 
sexual harassment and uh, and so on has become you know a a very hot topic recently. And I personally think that these things exist on a continuum. And at one end, you know, we've got uh, we've we've got rapists and and people for whom uh, you know no does not mean no. On the other end, we've got people. And I think I think Leo is maybe one of them who says something inappropriate, and the person he says it to says that's not going to happen, and he probably says, oh, OK, I'm sorry, you know. And we should say he says this inappropriate thing because it's been extremely successful for him in the past. Yeah, but it hasn't been extremely successful with him with this woman. You know, that's the thing. (laughs) You know, just because you say these, uh, you say things to things and they're mostly, they're mostly successful. I remember at university, um, there was a guy who lived in the basement of our student house who claimed that he asked every woman he ever met if she'd have sex with him. And I said, surely they don't. What? And he said, well, 95 out of 100 say no, but five say yes. And I was like, how can you live your life like that? And if there's something wrong with it, well, there's obviously something wrong with it. It's very wrong. But where does that kind of behaviour stand, you know, in relation to... Harvey Weinstein, or uh, you know that, uh, or that taxi driver that uh, that drugged and raped women. I think that it's a it's a it's a good question. It's a question for a for a novel, really. It's not a question for uh, you know. In the end, it's going to be a question for policymakers. But I think that uh, it's a good question for a novel because it's an exploratory question. This is the, the sort of straw that breaks the camel's back that leads Leo to leave Oxford. But he's already suffering. He's, he's not sort of meeting mm. people. He's having a, a bad time. And, and I understand that this reflects your own experience in Oxford somewhat. Yes, yes, it, it does, actually. I mean, not the uh, sexual harassment part, but uh, I, was somehow, I was somehow conspicuous. And I think that period that moment at the beginning of university there's a sort of panicked rushing together into into small clans and I've never been much of a clanny person and I guess I didn't uh, I, I you know I, before I knew it I was quite isolated for um for really quite a quite a few months and an isolated an, an isolated person um in those situations particularly somebody who, um, like me, had gone to university and was too nervous to come out as gay, you're evidently hiding something. You know, you're isolated. You are the target for some pretty bad behaviour, I would say. And, you know, there's stuff like, um, you know, there was stuff in the book like Leo having his door banged on and people yelling outside his door and, um, you know, and stuff like that. That uh, that that happened to me, but you, know, you just have to be uh, you just have to be strong about it and uh, get back in there and uh, and get on with it. And it was fine in the end. But there's not many people from uh, my undergraduate degree that I, I still see. And there's a, there's another way of dealing with that. There's a character in the book called Tom Dick who mm. also comes from Sheffield, like Liam, 
um, from a you know a, a more well, I mean I guess they're middle class, but you know from a from a less salubrious background than most of his Oxford contemporaries, who just reinvents himself. Yeah, that was a phenomenon of the time: people pushing themselves up the social scale, um, and it was very evident that um, when. Some of my pe- some of the people I was at university with were picked up by their parents at the end of the first term. That the parents were a bit kind of surprised at what their son or daughter was now wearing and the way that they were now talking. As an interesting phenomenon, I've often wondered what happened to those people afterwards. Did they go on talking like that? Did they go on pretending? Did they go on talking about their uncle's house in the country? I don't know. I don't know. It's uh, it's an interesting question. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Philip Henscher. We're talking about his latest novel, The Friendly Ones. And Philip, let's move on to the Sharif Ullah family. So Sharif and Nazia, who are the, the head of this family in the UK, they've come over from Bangladesh relatively recently, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But as the book begins... Again, they're holding this party for a housewarming party, which is for their third or fourth house in Sheffield that they've moved into. Tell us something about those and their and their children. Well, I I loved them. Sometimes um, sometimes you're interested by characters in a novel, and sometimes you just love a pair of characters. And the more I the more I wrote about them, the more they interested me. 
And I think the the thing that um, that very much interested me in in the the pair of them, and it's something that um, um, that I find in my um, in my my husband's immediate family, and in my husband indeed himself, is that they have a very healthy relationship to the argumentative conversation. They're very happy about um, sitting down to dinner and starting a good old scrap about what we should do about um, um, <laughs> about, uh, uh, about uh, hu- some human rights issue or, or something like that. And it gets quite, it can get quite furious. And then it comes to an end and then it's, it's absolutely fine. There's an engagement with ideas there. There's a kind of respect for other people's points of view that um, I, th- I could see after a bit was a very powerful underpinning of that marriage, really. They're quite different people, I think. You know, Sharif is is really, you know, some, somebody who sort of shrugs and gets on with with things. He has a kind of steely core. If you if you hit him, if you get to the wrong point, he will turn and bite. But for the most part, he's quite kind of... Um, calm and amiable she's much more she's much more ambitious i think in worldly ways and i think that um, that makes her um slightly vulnerable if you're if you pin your identity on what you're going to achieve then sometimes that just um falls to the floor and then you you don't have um, very much really but um see how that worked out and to see that they were going to be extremely good parents i mean there was no question that they were going to make great success of um, of of being parents to their uh, to their children uh, as opposed to the, the spinsters uh, next door. And indeed, um, they are yeah. a, a great success. In, yes. in their, <laughs> all of their children are very successful. Yes. Let's talk about Aisha, yes. who's... Yeah. I mean, I guess with Leo is possibly the main sort of drivers of the of the plot in the story um, yeah. in the UK section. So is she? Yeah. Well, she comes to the UK when she's eight. So she's... She's kind of the youngest member of the family to have some kind of experience of um, assimilation, and I've often thought that um, that there's there's a particular there's a particular age of self consciousness that um, really turns people into a particular you know, gives people a particular mindset, makes them look at the world in um, in a particular slightly detached way her brothers who are born in the the uk i don't think have that at all but she always knows that this is a little bit provisional i think i don't think she thinks like her parents do that the moment might come when um, the genocidaire come over the hill and they're going to have to pack their bags again but she does th- she does think that um, the friendships that she's being offered are not quite as reliable as they might be um, in other directions. You mentioned the Sheriff Fuller family. They are really appealing. They're a great family. Mm. They're a success. They also have this incredibly interesting and tragic backstory. Yes. How do you, when you're writing this, as you're going along, how do you balance the two sort of sets of families? Because one could quite easily sort of overshadow Mm. the other. 
Oh, Lord, I don't know. I think that's a question for the for the editing stage, really, to think, oh, there's, uh, there's a bit too much of this, you know. And I, I thought about the, the way that the book was going to be to be structured um, very early on. And the the first half of the book is the spinster family and the, the Charavullers are kind of coming in as mm-hmm. the kind of amiable neighbours, but their story isn't really being told except in tiny snatches. And then in the second half, I thought this story is of such kind of gravity and importance that it deserves to be told in a consistent way, you know, not... Um, not by intertwining it, but simply by giving the reader the real chance to be absorbed in their particular trajectory. So, in a way, that was uh, that was quite an easy way to um, to make sure that they weren't that it was being um, being balanced. Because, you know, it's um, this is I, f- I felt you know this is the spinsters' half of the book. They can take charge, um, and th- then you know this is Sharif and Nazia's side. You know, I'm going to listen to them talking for a bit. I'm Rachel Cook, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's go back in time a little bit to the early 70s then and over to uh, Dan Mondi, the, the, mm. the place in Dakar where the, where the house is. Sharif's brother, Rafik, who is he? Uh, Rafik is a freedom fighter, and the uh, the people who fought for the liberation of Bangladesh, they're a very brave uh, bunch of people. They're national heroes. Now, a lot of them were very young. You know, Rafiq in, in the book is 17 years old. Um, that's quite, uh, that was quite commonplace. Um, and he goes on, but he's also, you know, that particular um, group of people, they were very, very vulnerable to being denounced by um, the collaborators. They were, you know, they knew the risks they were taking. And a lot of them, you know, disappear, were disappeared into Pakistani police stations and were never heard of uh, again. There's a great memoir of the the period by a writer called Jahanara Imam. It's, it is just about translated into English, not very well. It's quite hard to... Um, get hold of and she tells the story of her son who was uh, disappeared in uh, in exactly this way and uh, I you know I thought uh, I would draw on her experience really Uh, she was uh, she was she's a very good teller of what uh, what happened and another one of Sharif's uh, family a sister Sadia she's Mm. married to a more devout man called Mahfouz who Well, as far as the family is concerned, has betrayed the family. They know as as much as they could possibly know. Let's talk a little bit about Mafuz. Tell us something mm. about who he is. Mafuz is a he's a he's somebody from a much more uh, conventional and religious family than uh, the um, than the Sharifullahs. The sister who the sister who marries him is a bit of a, a cuckoo in in the uh, in in the family. Um, she wants she longs for a more conventional way of living. She asks if they if they will um, arrange a marriage for her, which is really unheard of in these uh, secular intellectual Bengali families. They just wouldn't, you know, they're one of the things that um, they're absolutely devoted to and have been for, you know, over 100 years 
is that uh, women should be properly educated and should have um, professions. So that would be an absolute anathema to them. Uh, Mafuz comes from this uh, this conventional family. Um, is also um, that that sort of family rates religion over. Uh, secular culture, and so would be naturally more, you know, attuned to the uh, the Pakistani government in Islamabad. A lot of those people did become uh, collaborators. He, uh, because of what happens in uh, Bangladesh after independence, he and Sadia flee to to England, and they take up uh, they take up their lives here. And then a few years later, the political situation in Bangladesh changes, and the rest of the family start to think, you know, that they ought to go to England as well. But they only ever meet once again. And I think that's probably quite um, that, that's probably quite a common experience in families that were divided like this. There was another there's another sequence in the book where um without giving too much away, Mafuz Sadi has died at some point mm. off screen mm. and um and Mafuz has been married to somebody else. Yes. They go on a honeymoon to, to Land's End mm. and it's Cornwall, of course. Everybody's staring at these people, she's obviously covered up. Yes. And um and I thought that was a really sympathetic portrayal of that of that excursion yes. for these, considering Mafuz is basically the villain of the book. Well, yes, I think they, you know, I think even even villainous people, they're, you know, they're capable of, of love, really. And, you know, she's, you know, she's not, uh, she's not villainous. You know, she's a, you know, she's a girl. Uh, why? Um, I was really interested, really, in um, that chapter. It was a hard chapter to write, and it was the one that um, I did get uh, friends who know that um, uh, that community to go over with a fine-tooth comb. I was very interested in addressing that kind of experience in an art form that nobody in that chapter would go anywhere near. You know, if you're a fundamentalist, uh, if if you're a fundamentalist in that sense, you know, it would be pretty unlikely, I would think, that you would find yourself in a position where you'd want to read a book like The Friendly Ones. So how do you address that without making them seem like a sort of alien kind of presence, really? How do you write about it without, without you know, trying to enter into their feelings um, rather than making it seem like it's a chapter about, I don't know, you know, a, you know, an, an animal or something. I enjoyed writing it, and I, you know, there were a number of practical problems that had to be solved, explaining how it was that this couple could go on honeymoon and that sort of thing. And and friends gave me a lot of helpful advice about uh, uh, about that. I think that um, in the end. I was quite glad to finish writing that chapter. It was quite difficult to be in those heads. One other thing about the book, and then I'll, I'll get you to—I'll get you to read some, if you would. Obviously, Hillary has basically, as we go through the book, alienated most of his own family, and he gradually gets absorbed into the Sherry Fuller family. And what develops is this really great and touching friendship over the years between Sharif and Hillary. Um, and they do, they become like, you know, best buddies. It's really great. Tell me something about that journey. Well, the thing about Hillary and the reason that his family are so dysfunctional is that no one will ever argue with him. 
And, you know, whenever he says something controversial in the morning, listening to, listening to Radio 4, they just say, oh, if you say so, really, you know, just wander off. And he meets Sharif and suddenly, you know, writing the book, it all made sense. It all made sense what Hillary needed and why Sharif in this kind of uh, joyously argumentative way was there. And they meet after um, after Celia has died. They ask him round for dinner in a polite way. And the dinner turns into a real grand old Barney. And at the end of it, you know, they just realise that they need each other and they like each other. They disagree. They disagree about everything. But uh, but that's the sound basis of a friendship. Of course, after that, his children, they notice that all this has happened and they understand and then they start trying to have arguments with him. But he won't. He won't. He's faithful to Sharif in his arguments. Can I get you to, to read a bit of the... Uh, do you want this? Of course. Mine? Yeah, thank you. Well, one of the... Um, one of the key episodes of the the book, I mean, it is about the the encounter between two cultures in this country, and one of the most painful, probably the most painful moments of encounter was the seven seven bombings, and one of the characters is uh, is killed in the seven seven bombings, and his sister afterwards is who loves him more than anybody is really tormented by the imagination of his last moments she tried to explain to her husband how it was that a solid feature of the room she lived in had been removed at a stroke and one felt first of all that the room would collapse it was a structural feature surely a load-bearing one and then she saw that it was holding up together for the moment it was more than she could bear to hear anyone, even Jeremy, talk about religion in any context. In those first days of love, you could find yourself talking with intensity and commitment on almost any subject, gazing into the face of a loved one. It would have been the same if Jeremy had been a microbiologist instead of a vicar. Now it was gone. Poor stupid Russell, her son, bovine, fire-engine-obsessed, solidly repetitive, a stranger from the moment of his birth, was bewildered by his mummy. Jeremy knew too well what to do. He had no mood of crumpled grief himself. He had gone into the kind, sad, supportive figure that he impersonated once a week for near strangers in his congregation. He had never met Hugh, and he had no grief, only concern for his wife, he could not feel the wind that was tearing through the hole left in the universe by violent design. She wanted to apologise. Most of all, she could not stop constructing the minutes before it had happened. Hugh running for the bus, then seeing that there were a lot of people shoving to get on. Something must have happened to the tube that morning. It was always happening. He must have been one of the last on a very full bus. Just by him, a man was sitting in one of the disabled seats with a rucksack on his knees. That rucksack would really get on people's nerves in a crowded bus or tube. Was he a tourist, that poor man? He was sitting and muttering into his phone and perspiring there in his seat. The rucksack had been a mistake, the man was coming to understand during a London morning rush hour. He was clutching it tight, trying to stop it spilling over onto his neighbour's knees. Hugh had raised his head. He had caught the eye of a girl, a pretty girl from a Chinese family. Her hair scrunched up in a sort of perm, and her eyes dropped. 
She had recognised him from some advert. The muttering from the man in the seat just by him was continuing. It had a fierce quality, a sound under the breath. Hugh couldn't see, but he wasn't quite certain that the man was talking into a mobile phone after all. The bus was turning off Euston Road, down towards Tavistock Square. Travelling in the morning on public transport in London, you quickly learnt the importance of treating other people with respect and consideration. Hugh very much hoped he wasn't going to be late for the ten o'clock start of rehearsals. He told himself firmly that there was all the time in the world. I've been talking to Philip Henshaw. We've been talking about his latest novel, The Friendly Ones, which is out now from Fourth Estate. Philip, thank you so much for coming in and talking about it. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.